John Madison from Kaiser, you are one of the top uh, people who happens to be a doctor helping people make sense of what's going on with this intersection of uh, sustainability, technology, and trying to empower people to make a difference in their own lives. Thank you for joining us. HIM16, Health Innovation Media, broadcasting live from the Conversa booth, 11334 in the lower level. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity, and, and thank you for the kind words. Um, I, I, I have an addiction to uh, trying to understand things and look at the whole picture. So, John, just off the top of your head, what's, what's the biggest recommendation that health technologists or health executives need to do to navigate forward? What's the watchword they need? Well, I, I, there's so many. Um, I'll, I'll just pick a couple. So, one is humility. Um, and I think uh, in, in the political space of interoperability, and interoperability has become a political football. It's no longer a technical or a social or cultural or a business issue. It's, it's a political issue. And it has been the political aspect that has been growing for quite some time. And I think too many people are uh, proposing that because ATMs were ubiquitous 20 years ago, uh, what's wrong with healthcare that we don't have interoperability already solved today? And I like to point out the fact that you do dollars and cents and minutes and seconds and debits and credits and accounts and identity management, and you're pretty much done right. with an ATM. <laughs> people, ha people have a few more <laughs> There's a little more elements. complexity there. Uh, let's just say there's 3.2 billion base pairs in their DNA alone. Right and how those manifest is way more complex than that. So I think that these attempts to accelerate interoperability, or worse yet, let's throw away everything we've done to date and start all over again, represents a failure to appreciate the complexity of the issue. So a little humility and a little patience is necessary to moderate a political process that, if anything, has obstructed the progress and the pace of interoperability rather than helped it because it's putting too much emphasis on things that are not necessarily going to help. So that would that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing... So humility to help us address the interoperability challenge. To appreciate the complexity of the problem and respect the fact that it isn't for lack of thousands of really smart people working on this for a long time that we're, we're still having problems. And I think the reductionism of the political process to who's to blame um, has been all too convenient in the Beltway uh, to uh, attempt to reframe the whole interoperability issue in a political framework rather than understand the depth of the complexity of what we're trying to solve. And, I, and, and so. And the motivations, both business models, all the motivations are good. All right. the, everybody's but, motives are but good. But we have here. business models that are I'm not. I'm not questioning or indicting the motives of anybody at right. all. What I'm saying is there's, there's a, a profound lack of humility of jumping to solutions before people understand the problem. The, the depth and thing, the detail of the problem. Yes. The second sort of, you asked for buzzwords, so the first is humility. The second would be to really embrace the evolution from 
an institutional model of care or a doctor-centric model of care to a person-centric model of care. And I'm making a real distinction here because buzzwords, buzzwords, patient-centric, consumer-centric, patient activation, they sell really well, but they, they miss the point of what constitutes the human condition. We, again, it's a very similar problem, is first seek to understand before we throw solutions at a problem. And in the case of healthcare, we've been way too busy for the past 50 years having a disease-centric view, and then we finally got to a patient and then a consumer. But if you look at what Dan Buettner has done with the Blue Zones, where he's studied, he's used the, the principle of positive deviance, looking for communities that live longer and healthier lives, and there's a tremendous knowledge yes. base about what's involved with healthy eating, healthy sleeping, healthy uh, ex exercise. Social. Most important of all, thank you. Most social. importantly of all is social. Community. Pay attention to the health of your social. And I advise people regularly, if you're in a toxic team in a company, find another team. If there's one or two toxic people on your team, help them understand how they're killing themselves and the people around them and help bring them to a higher state of understanding what a meaningful life it consists of. But the evidence that if you live in a toxic work environment or a toxic home environment, that your impact, that the impact on your health is profound, that the science there is, is like basic math and physics. It's so rock solid and unassailable. And, and we know that early childhood experiences, the ACE studies, adverse childhood experiences done by Vince Floody and the Centers for Disease Control 20 plus years ago, show that the impact of our social health early in life has a profound lifelong effect, shortening length by of longevity by decades, shortening and complicating it with all kinds of health issues. We know that the social determinants of health profoundly influence people's health and longevity. And the thing that, that we really underestimate in all of this digital healthcare is to take it out of this institutional-centric, doctor-centric, patient-centric, consumer-centric view and look at the person in the community they live so that we not only get healthy eating, sleeping, and exercise, but we focus on a healthy social environment. This is, and I, and, and I spoke to this with a group of about 600 physicians on Monday. And the question was asked, you know, John, our docs are always a burden. Are you saying that they're going to be accountable for fixing all this stuff? And the answer is, they are not the whole solution, but they are a critical missing link. Because physicians in particular, but the healthcare team in general, has a profound opportunity to reshape the discussion and reshape how we address these issues in ways that begin to get at a much more community health focus. So I like to say population health is dead uh, at Kaiser Permanente. We've, we've done a lot of great work improving the health of every one of our members through focusing on populations that carry certain diseases. But in the world of personalized medicine and in our, with our understanding of community health and what makes an individual healthy within the social context of their community, we should be abandoning the population health and going in the direction of community-based health and personalized medicine so that we know from the clinical side what's unique to that individual but we don't forget that that individual's health is shaped as much by their genome and their exposures as it is by their social environment. And Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler 
have given us a gift beyond compare in the book Connected to really elaborate how critical that social influence is. So we need to re, the, the, the role of healthcare and healthcare teams institutions, we have an opportunity now to do something unprecedented in modern history, and that is to restore some of the, use the technology to restore the ancient wisdom and bring a community focus back to how we protect children in their early years from adverse consequences. So how we create a sustainable social ecosystem for health and it can't reside within the healthcare system. So the answer to the question I got on Monday is not, yes, you doctors are in charge of this, but it is very much the entire healthcare system. Because they're treating the consequences of neglecting all these other community health issues, they have a critical role to begin to catalyze a much more systematic, community-based focus on health, healthy, fresh food accessibility to all communities, safe, walkable spaces for all communities, emphasizing healthy walking, thinking about how to use digital technologies rather than, as digital nannies to say you need to take 100 more steps, <laughs> to a healthier way of thinking about every right. decision we make. So I want to zero in on, and I know you did this very specifically, you use the word person. Right. If we call people consumers and then they consume too much, we need to think about us as sustainers. My original training was environmental science, sustainability. Oh, I did some of that too. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So we, I think we have to start using the term sustainers or citizens who have responsibilities and people. Right. So we're beyond patients because sometimes we're patients, Way but beyond. we're always people. Right. Um, excellent point, and I think it's very specific. And it, if we don't change the words of the leadership, these to are, recognize these, people, right. we're not going to change to moving to this social, recognizing right. that if we don't connect into the social dots, right. we're not going to shift the health of the population and improve outcomes. We've, we're a culture of buzzwords, and the narrative behind those buzzwords is very, very shallow. We need a much richer narrative in support of memes and tropes that are better represented by person-centric care that explicitly represents mind, body, and spirit and the influence of the entire community. And what Dean Ornish, one of my heroes of all heroes, has been saying for many decades is that the extent to which we express and receive love has a profound influence on our health and happiness and the decisions that we make. And there was, there was a great study published recently that took volunteers and exposed them to a cold virus. And then they looked at their Facebook feed and they did analytics on how healthy their social health was in the two weeks preceding their exposure to the cold. And guess what? The people who had health manifest in their social relationships on their Facebook feeds in the preceding two weeks were less likely to get infected from the same exposure everybody else got. And if they did get infected, they were less sick than the others. And one of the key factors that they noted is if you just counted the hugs that they had given or received or both in the preceding two weeks, it was a good predictor of whether or not they got sick and how sick they the are. The hug index. Absolutely. The hug index. Absolutely. So uh, incredible wisdom. Now, I think we have some barriers in our organizations and how they're organized. I'm doing a lot of work with the Nova Center for Personalized Health, and I'm trying to cut across... I don't want to call them silos because it's how people get work done and how that we organize the system. Cardiologists, we're a system of specialists. 
but getting people to talk. We were talking to Daniel Kraft about breaking down some of those barriers. What do we need to do at the leadership, the CEO level? So there's CEOs like Rod Hockman and others that I think get it. And we've created these roles as CMIOs, and certain people say they should be chief health officers, not just chief medical officers. I adopted both titles, so I am CMIO and CHIO. Okay, and you have supported your organization in doing that? Uh, I, I appropriated CMIO in the first place, and I've just appropriated CHIO because the M in CMIO excludes so much of the work that right. I do. Uh, I didn't feel I, I needed to socialize the fact that what the work that I do is very much about health and that the medical part of that is a proper subset, but it's not where the real value proposition is. So using digital health to restore ancient wisdom, to look at community-based health and support personalized medicine is what we need to be doing. That That's... Uh, and so... Any quick recommendations in the last couple minutes to organizations that need to reorganize? Yes. Engage with a larger community. Start, stop looking at our navels in healthcare <laughs> and trembling over what the next regulatory threat is going to be uh, out, of, out of our regulatory process and break the mold and do what family physicians did a hundred years ago and engage with the community. Engage with all the community resources at a much more explicit, deliberate level. Catalyze and sponsor and convene discussions between leaders in the educational system, leaders in the social services environment, across governmental, non-governmental, foundations, healthcare. Bring the people together and advocate for a community-based focus on health and get people talking to each other because if you talk to any one of these uh, entities individually, they'll all complain bitterly about how it's so hard for them to do the work because the other players in the community are dropping their ball. How do we create smooth handoffs and coordinated community services that allow us to really get at the social determinants of health in a collective and collaborative way. It's not happening. It happened back in tribes tens of thousands so of years ago. So try. It happens in small towns across the world today. It happens massively in blue zones and it's been lost partially because of the technology leading to isolation and loneliness and loneliness is a profound risk factor for health. We need to, there are, there are people who are homebound across the street from other people who would love to help and don't even know that their neighbor's homebound right across the street. So how do we create social interactions in the community across the various services and organizations to begin to link people in need? So it's what I call harvesting excess and, and latent compassion and applying it because there's need everywhere. There's willing people who want to lead meaningful lives everywhere, who feel like they're banging their head against their professional wall every single day. And if we can unlock that latent compassion and release it on communities at large and begin to connect people, um, those with needs and those who want to provide, and, and I'll, I'll end this frame by saying that Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize winner, once said, if you're feeling helpless, help somebody. We need to use technology to systematize, and the best example I've seen yet is there 
is a new website just launched in the last week in the EU to provide the equivalent of Airbnb and Uber and all social services to the Syrian refugees. So that through a matchmaking system online, families who want to help can get connected with families that They are in need help. of help and connect them through transportation and medical care and social services and that's bring the world example. together. And I believe that that's going to set a precedent for what we can do at scale in every community in the world. And at the recent IMPACT conference, Senator Kennedy uh, was bemoaning how much stress he endured as a child despite being a member of the Kennedy family, in some cases because being a member of the Kennedy family, and how isolating it was when he had significant needs as a child and the impact it had on him. And his point was, this crosses all socioeconomic boundaries. Right. If it can affect the Kennedy family, it can affect anyone. So we need to think about this not as somebody else's problem. It is our collective problem as responsible members of our community. And healthcare has a critical role to play. And we've been so struggling with the regulatory environment within which we live and the time pressure within which everything exists and with the financial constraints of the system and the perverse incentives, particularly in the fee-for-service world, that we have dropped the ball on what problem we're trying to solve. We should expand our horizons on what problem we're solving, engage, catalyze, inspire, and this can be done, this will happen. So you opened with the word humility. Yes. And I'm gonna open with a short, close with a short phrase. Let's not be so serious and let's make it fun because if we do that, we'll create community. And I would like to agree wholeheartedly with that and recognize that there are four things that lead to a meaningful life. One is having a skill that you believe is useful. Second is feeling that you're making a positive impact on your community, whatever that is, whether it's your peers in a nursing home or whether it's your friends or family or community. The third is feeling appreciated for what you do. And the fourth is practicing the discipline of gratitude. And so fun is a part of that, but feeling like you're helping your community and feeling appreciated for it and being grateful for what you have can transform the culture of epidemic anxiety, depression, and fear that we live in today. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.